Welcome to Pod to the Rescue. Rescuing the dog is just the first step. We're here to help with everything that comes next. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Pod to the Rescue. I'm Libby. And I'm Emily. And we are so excited to bring you this first episode of season two. We interviewed Michael Shikashio, who is a world-renowned expert on dog aggression. And this conversation was so exciting. There were so many gems in there, and I am still just gobsmacked by all the knowledge he just dropped. I I am so overwhelmed that he took the time and so grateful that he took the time to speak with us. The gems that we got out of this conversation, I think are so useful to anyone who works in a shelter or fosters dogs or has newly adopted a dog over the pandemic. It's really, um, it was a wonderful conversation and so full of information. I'm still kind of mulling over in my mind, all the topics that we hit in less than an hour. Absolutely. And he offers so many great resources. So if you work with dogs in any capacity, please listen all the way through this episode. It's fantastic. We talked about some myth busting, which I think is so important in order to set our dogs up for success and just ways that we can work with our dogs so that they don't feel the need to display aggressive behavior. Yeah. And I think that this piece of really understanding aggressive behavior better is so important for anyone in the rescue and shelter community. It's true. We, we try to label a dog as this one's aggressive, that one's not aggressive, but in reality, aggression is just a behavior that, that all of us display. And so understanding it and how to work with it and how to avoid it and how not to create it is going to really help so many people in the dog world. One thing that we discussed, but didn't define that we wanted to define for you listeners real quick is the term antecedent. Antecedent refers to the conditions or factors that lead to a behavior. So it's what occurred right before the behavior happened. And one example Michael gave was, you know, if he went into someone's house and they said, well, every time I walk over to the kitchen sink, my dog growls at me, then it would be the walking over to the kitchen sink that was the antecedent to the behavior, which was the growl. So when you listen to that segment and we discuss antecedent, that would be what we were talking about. Yeah, hopefully that gives a little bit more context. So a little more about Michael. Michael Shikashio is an internationally sought after keynote speaker and presenter on the topic of aggression at numerous events, conferences, and universities worldwide. He has mentored and presented to thousands of animal professionals in 12 different countries and has been a guest at every major dog training conference in the U.S. and Mexico. Michael is fully certified through the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants and is one of fewer than 300 CDBCs worldwide. He is the founder of the Aggression in Dogs Master Course and currently teaches trainers and behavior consultants in more than 25 countries how to work with aggression cases. Michael has been a featured guest for numerous media outlets, including the New York Times, New York Post, Sirius XM Radio, Real Simple Magazine, Baltimore Sun, WebMD, WTNH Channel 8, Steve Dale's Pet World, and Women's Health. He is referred to by countless veterinary professionals, rescue and shelter organizations, 
and behavior professionals from all over the world for working with aggression cases. So links to Michael's work and all of the organizations that he mentions and his podcast will all be in the show notes. So please check those out wherever you get your podcasts or on podtotherescue.com. Without further ado, here's our interview with Michael Shikashio. We hope you enjoy. Michael Shikashio, welcome to Pod to the Rescue. Thank you so much for being on. We're really excited to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be talking about all the stuff we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, there's so much. Yeah. So before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to focus on aggression in dogs? Sure. So this is actually the perfect podcast for this because my I got started in rescue and fostering dogs. And that's what kind of whet my appetite for working with aggression cases and working with dogs with aggression issues. So I, I did a lot of fostering and rescue work when I first started out because I, I always wanted to open a dog business of some kind. And I figured I, what better way to get experience is I'm sure many of the listeners know is to foster some dogs in your home. And that's the fastest, one of the fastest way to really learn how to work with and handle dogs and, and to have them live with you. So as Many of the foster parents, I'm sure, listening know that you start to get more of the difficult dogs as you become known as the experienced foster home. And then they send you more. Maybe the next thing you know, you end up with like eight or 10 foster dogs at a time. And you learn how to really manage multiple groups of dogs and avoid issues. So, um, so yeah, I started learning about, uh, I want to learn more about behavior and training to really learn you know, the right way to help these dogs. So that kind of segued into learning how to train dogs, basic issues, uh, all the way on up to what I do now is just work, strictly working with aggression cases. And uh, that's been my journey. I've, um, I've, I kind of did a lot of just general training early on and then moved into just taking aggression cases. And now all I do is kind of just teach other trainers how to work with aggression cases. Uh, and I've uh, been focusing on that for the last few years exclusively. So it's been been a fun journey for sure. That's great. I um, kind of have a similar fostering arc because uh, I had my first foster was a little fearful. And then Emily started asking me to like walk the fearful dogs. And then they gave me Daisy, my current dog, <laughs> is all sorts of challenging, but um, uh, it's, it's kind of a crash course, right? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's like how most of us get started as dog trainers, right? We get like our first problem, you know, quote unquote problem dog, and then yeah. you get into behavior and training. And, and uh, yeah, that's it's a fun way to learn. So before we um, get much further, can you define aggression in dogs for our listeners? So this is a really important question to ask. You know, what is aggression? What, is, what does it mean? And um, it's important to make that distinction. Aggression is behavior. So we don't want to label it as a personality trait for a dog because it, it creates lots of issues when you start to say a dog is aggressive. Now, aggressive dog is the name of my website. That's the people search for that when they're talking about aggression in dogs, but it's really important. Aggression is behavior used to increase distance from a stimulus. That's the very basic definition of it. Your dog is, is feeling threatened or is fearful of a particular thing in the in environment, and they just want it to get further away. They want it to go away because they're having issues with it. And aggressive behavior usually accomplishes that task of so barking, lunging, growling, snarling, snapping, all the way on up to biting might be used to increase distance from a stimulus. And that's the function of aggression. And if you look at it, that that's the most simplest form, then we don't have to 
you know, give the dog a personality trait or say it's this dog's fault or the owner's fault. It's just behavior. There's something in the environment that's setting that behavior in motion. That's really the easiest way to look at it. And it's the easiest way to understand it as well. Uh, once you make it easy to understand, it's a lot uh, also easier to treat that issue. I think that's so important for rescuers and shelter workers to know because we always hear like, oh, we don't take aggressive dogs. Like when we ask our fellow rescue friends, like, can you take this dog or that dog? They're like, well, and as long as this doesn't have aggression. And then on our applications, when we're processing applications for a dog, a deal breaker is always aggression. And so it seems like understanding aggression and that it's a behavior in a repertoire of behaviors and not some abnormal thing is important for dog people to know. Yeah, because it's so contextual, you know, behavior is contextual, it happens in a certain, you know, fancy terms, an antecedent arrangement, it's happening. Um, it doesn't happen all the time. And so, you know, to answer just that, just, just, or to use that as one criteria, you know, is the dog aggressive, is unfortunately unfair to the dog, because most of the time, it's very understandable, you know, every mammal, every species uses aggression for self-preservation, including humans. And so, if I said, you know, Emily's aggressive, oh no, you know, I'm not going to be friends with her. That's, that's, that's basically what, what, why? But maybe it's because some guy cut you off on the street and flipped you the bird and you responded with the same thing. And oh my gosh, she's so aggressive. But that's totally unfair. And the same thing can happen with dogs. Somebody, you know, uh, reaching into the dog's food bowl while they're eating, which I don't recommend. But the dog responds with a growl or something. And suddenly that dog's labeled aggressive and then completely unfair to that dog for. Uh, deciding whether an adoption prospect or not based on just that one incident. So there's other variables, I think, of course, that should be assessed for when you're looking at is, is this dog an adoption candidate or not. Yeah, that's so important. Are there, just briefly, what are some of the other variables that you look for if we're, if we're speaking directly here to shelters and rescues? Yeah, so there's quite a few. You know, I think uh, one of the things that is is cause for concern, but also a useful tool is the bite, the level of biting that happens. So a lot of shelters will use like Ian, Dr. Ian Don Potter's bite scale, which is a very useful tool to assess the level of damage inflicted, but that's what it is. It, it assesses the level of damage. It doesn't assess other factors. And so um, that's a good first step. So if I've got a dog and that, that scale goes from levels one to six, so there's, there's different bite levels, um, six being death to the victim. If I've got a level six biter, that's clear cut. Like we're not gonna adopt our dogs that are killing people. Um, and then at the other end of the, the, the uh, rating scale is a level one, which is just an air snap with no contact. Fairly straightforward. Okay, we could probably work with this dog. It's not inherently dangerous. Maybe it's you know, at 20 level one bites. And so it's just snapping at people. It's exhibiting really great inhibition, very clear cut, probably a good chance for adoption prospect here because it's not doing any damage. It's just when it hits those gray areas, levels three and four biting, sort of in the middle of the scale, I've seen uh, where some, some uh, organizations, well, that's their sole criteria for uh, determining if the dog is gonna be adopted or not. And that is also terribly unfair because it doesn't assess all the other factors. Um, and here's, here's the kicker is that you could ask, I could get a hundred behavior professionals and show them pictures of a level three and a level four bite. It, you know, you'll, you'll get different uh, responses, but sometimes half will say that's a level three and the other half will say that's a level four uh, injury. And that could be the differentiator between adoption prospect and not. Level four, we don't adopt out. Level three, we adopt out and, or potentially adopt out depending on the other circumstances. But 
again, terribly unfair. So the other factors to look for are things like provocation. So if I have a dog that I'm reaching into its food bowl and it bites me, that's a high level of provocation. Now, if I have a dog that is laying down in its front yard and then somebody's walking by across the street, the dog gets up, charges across the street and latches onto that person or bites that person, there's no provocation there, right? So um, it's, there's, that's a considerable factor because sometimes it depends on what that person is doing or what the victim was doing in that case. Then you have to look at so many other things like as was it an underlying health issue that was causing? Is the dog in pain? Or did, does, did it very reasonably because the dog was in pain? Is there something that's very uh, obvious why the dog bit? Is there a wide range of antecedents? So is it a dog biting men, women, children, other dogs, kids on bikes and things like that? That's a more difficult case than the dog that only bites when people reach into its food bowl. So um, you know the range of antecedents is important. Then you can look at other things like the potential for risk. So if you got a 150 pound county corso, kind of level two or level three biter, that's gonna carry a little bit more risk than let's say a Pomeranian at a level, same level of biting. So you look at that factor. So uh, then you look at the environment. Can the person adopting the dog, or where's the dog going to manage the environment well? Are they gonna be able to uh, work on the issue and keep people safe uh, or manage that particular issue? Um, so uh, there's so many, there's just so many variables to like assess and look at. Uh, we, it's important to kind of look at that overall view. And that's why I recommend whenever i get that call a lot people will say you know mike can you come assess this dog or can we hire you to assess this dog we don't want to know if it's well safe well i could come to the shelter and look at the dog but that's not going to give me much information what's going to give me more information is if i can talk to the shelter staff that interact with the dog previous adopters anybody who's interacting with the dog previous uh, owners that may have information about any kind of aggression then i'm going to be able to have a much more robust picture that's going to allow me to you know, it's gonna give me data on saying, okay, yes, this is a potential because we looked at all those variables, the bite level, the provocation, the potential management, age of the dog, the breed of the dog, you know, the size of the dog, all those things that we can measure. Now, you're gonna be able to have a much more educated and objective decision-making process. So lots of variables, <laughs> I hope I kind of covered that the best I could, but. Um, so for someone bringing home a new dog, that had no sign of aggression in the shelter and came home with like a, a good behavior report, what would you recommend for them in order to set them up for success and try to avoid some pitfalls? You talked about reaching into the food bowl. What would be other things that you would recommend? Yeah, I think the number one thing, anybody who's getting a dog, whether it's in a foster or a, a adoption or any context of getting a dog is to learn how to read body language, to learn how to communicate with the dog because that's gonna tell you what the dog's feeling. It's gonna tell you if the dog's uncomfortable with a particular situation, because you could have a thousand point checklist of all the things you should do to avoid dog aggression or to prevent it. And yes, there's some useful things that we could put, uh, which we can discuss in a minute, but body language, that's gonna tell you a lot about how the dog is feeling. And if we can start to recognize those subtle signals, then we know, okay, oh, this dog's maybe uncomfortable with me going near the food bowl or something more quirky like you know walking over to the kitchen sink because the dogs had a negative interaction with somebody else spraying it with a spray or something weird like that and so i can't say to every adopter don't go near your kitchen sink but i can say if you happen to notice your dog lip licking or yawning or running away when you approach that kitchen sink that's telling you something so that's something to you're going to know for that individual dog 
it could be a problem. So we'll work on that. Let's, let's listen to the dog. The dog's telling you loud and clear what it's uncomfortable with. So by far, you know, just learning to read the dogs is, is goes such a long way. Wow. That's awesome. I wish more shelters and rescues had body language education as part of their adoption process. Yes. Yeah. It, 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 it would be very, very helpful. But in, in the right information too, unfortunately, sometimes, yeah, you know, information about what the dog is doing or as can be a little bit misguided in terms of, you know, some of the signals, but yeah. We've been recommending the Lily Chin doggy language book to all our listeners. Yes. Yes, Lily's stuff is great. Um, I also just have to give a plug because I'm going through it right. I'm going through my Fear Free certification right now, and their program is incredible. If you're a trainer or a shelter or a rescue, like their resources are incredible. So, second second shout out to them, uh, Marty and Marty and Mikael Becker, uh, good friends and colleagues. They they have put out some amazing stuff, and the rest of the Fear Free team as well. So kudos to them for really helping to educate the masses. Those are some really good starting points. Understanding body language is kind of the most important thing to prevent aggression when you bring a dog into your home. What are some common ways that we create dog aggression? We were really looking forward to talking to you about this after we saw a little infographic you posted. So um, we'd love to go over these. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think from a foster shelter kind of rescue perspective, you know, one of the things that uh, sort of in the broader perspective is uh, making sure we're giving the dog enough time to acclimate to the environment. And that'll touch on some of those points. So if you get a dog, for instance, and we're, we're um, really motivated to get that dog adopted, and we're fostering it, we're in a shelter or rescue situation, sometimes we're overzealous. So we try to push things quickly. So let's say we get a dog that's somewhat showing some signs of like shyness or fearfulness around other dogs or something. And in the name of socialization, I'm putting big air quotes up there, socialization, we try to socialize them to help them. Uh, and they're new to the foster home or the organization or something like that. That's stressful enough as well. Any kind of change in environment can be stressful for anybody, any dog or human, right? And so, you know, so I sometimes see, let's go to the dog park. We'll put you in the middle of the dog park with a bunch of other dogs running around. Sometimes you get away with it, but a lot of times that can backfire because it's just too overwhelming for the dog. I, I, I use the analogy of the, the bar, you know, it's like taking a dog to a, to a nightclub or to a bar. And sometimes the dog will have a good time, but other times bad things can happen in those dog parks, you know, so bar fights and uh, unwelcome advances and humping uh, and, uh, you know, diseases and stuff. There's bad things that can happen in dog parks. So just like a nightclub or a bar. So we gotta be careful about those. So I never recommend um, taking a shy or fearful dog to a dog park or something like that. Another one is, um, um, you know, social, again, in the attempt to socialize the dog, we bring the dog up to things, whether it's a person or another dog or a garbage can or whatever it is on leash. And we're kind of pulling the dog over there to coax them to try to get them, air quotes, mm -hmm. used to that mm -hmm. particular thing which is kind of forcing the dog into a situation they don't want, but then they get trapped there because the leash is restricting them. So we're holding the leash a little tighter. And again, the dog's maybe not barking or lunging uh, or showing any of what sounds of aggression. So we're like, okay, maybe they'll get used to it in the name of just socialization. But we're, at the same time, we might be what's called flooding that dog. It's putting them in an overwhelming situation and now they can't get away with it. If you do that enough times, some dogs will resort to aggression 
because that's what ends up working with them because we've, re we've removed their flight option artificially by using a leash, restricting their flight option. And then what are you left with? One of the other apps can be the fight option, which they decide, okay, I guess the only way for me to get away from this dog is to use my teeth or some other aggressive behavior. Right. And that usually works because somebody's going to pull me away. Next thing you know, we've reinforced that behavior. We've actually caused an aggressive response, which the dog's going to use again in the future to get itself out of a scary situation. So that's another one. Uh, the other other common ones are um, the the whole. Uh, I forgot what was on my list for that thing, but the one other one that's right at the top of my mind that I've seen happen, and actually got great videos of this in so many ways. That's the beauty of social media. You see <laughs> tons of this happening. Um, maybe not in a good way, yeah. but it's it's you know hand feeding. Mm -hmm. So people will use their hand to hand feed a treat to a dog and attempts to get them used to that person. So let's say you have that shy or fearful foster and we get our friends over or somebody in there that's gonna help us try to get this dog used to people. We give them treats. I'll just give him some treats. Then he'll like you and maybe he'll get over. And again, it works for some dogs, but with some dogs, we are drawing them past their critical distance where they see that food and it's like, ooh, cookie or hot dog or whatever. Um, they, they go over to that, yeah? They go over to the get the treat and they, um, they, that draws them into this critical distance, past what's called the critical distance. It's the distance at which they feel threatened. And because, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's enticing to the dog to see that treat. And then they get stuck there. They look up and they're like, oh boy, I'm in trouble here. And then they end up resorting to aggression to get themselves out of that space. It's the, the analogy I use all the time is a pile of $100 bills in one hand and I've got a gun in the other. Come get the, come get the bundle of $100 bills You'd be like, ooh, money, but then I've got a gun pointed at you on the other hand. You're going to be very conflicted about that. So uh, so it's always better, you know, if you're going to do that, if the dog is not going over the threshold, barking, lunging, growling, and the person can be in the vicinity, they can toss treats to the dog at first. Toss the treats slightly behind the dog and helps the dog increase distance without having to figure out how to do it on its own. And if they're interested, they'll come back and just toss the treat again. And over time, you'll see that body language. That's your barometer to measure how the dog's feeling. You'll see that body language start to change uh, to where they might be more receptive to when hand feeding is okay for them. But the way to tell is body language. I love that. You had a, a post on social media over the weekend with a dog that was barking and lunging and you just threw food. And you know, a lot of people would feel like, why were you throwing food at a dog that was barking and lunging? but it's to change the way they feel. And you were throwing it behind so they got that relief of pressure. Yes, yeah. One of the, the biggest misconceptions is that uh, giving food or comforting a dog that's fearful uh, will reinforce the fear. But that's the issue is that it's an emotional response. We cannot reinforce emotional responses the same way we can reinforce behavior. So I, if I give a cookie to a dog that sits or jumps up on me, they're going to remember, okay, I got a cookie for sitting or jumping up on the person. That's why a lot of dogs do start getting worse than that because people are petting them as they're jumping up. That's behavior um, that we can end up reinforcing, but it's not driven by fear. Barking and lunging at somebody coming in the yard, that motivation is driven by fear, that underlying emotional response. We can't reinforce that. We can't reinforce uh, the fear issue. So it's the same as people that if you're afraid of something, I said, it's okay, or if I gave you some money, or did anything that's going to comfort you, it's not going to make you more fearful of that particular uh, situation. 
So if you address the fear, then you address the behavior because if the dog changes from I'm scared of this person to ooh, I kind of like this person because they're giving me treats and they're not doing anything threatening to me, you'll see the fear go away and then the reason for the behavior goes away. So the barking and munching no, no longer needs to happen because the dog's actually okay with the person now. So the barking and munching goes away and now it's more, much more affiliative, happy approaching, and that's why it's okay to toss treats at dogs like that. The one caveat is the small, small percentage of dogs that are somewhat having a good time doing that behavior, and those are breed-specific behaviors like uh, like a livestock guardian dog potentially protecting the property. Yeah, and that's that's the difference. Yes, we might inadvertently reinforce that behavior because it's not driven by fear or some under, underlying emotional response like that. So there's a distinction. I always like to mention that because I don't want people also reinforcing like their German Shepherd for like barking, lunging at something that's approaching them with, you know, that they feel is a threat to their owner. They're just doing what a good German Shepherd would do. So it's a different approach there. Those we're going to work more on teaching the dog what to do instead. Uh, but vast majority of the time, Toxic treats at a dog that's that's barking lunging out of fear is not going to to hurt anything. It's only going to make things better in most cases. I'm so glad you brought that up because that was going to be my next question. Because I have an Australian cattle dog, <laughs> so if she is barking and lunging at a bike, it's not because she's afraid of it. She's just super excited. There's something fast moving in her environment. Um, so yeah, like you said, that in those cases you teach the dog what to do instead like a replacement behavior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the important distinction. Sometimes we need a professional step in to help to, to the client to assess really what's going on. Uh, and sometimes there's a mixture. Sometimes a dog could be a little bit fearful, but also displaying breed specific behaviors. So that's why it's important to, to, to work with a professional that can help create the appropriate behavior plan. But yes, there are some dogs that they're gonna do things that that particular breed does. The border collie chasing the children around in the backyard reasonably say that's pretty normal for that particular breed. Um, and back to that graphic, the infographic about ways to create aggression, you would not recommend punishing a dog that was barking and lunging at a stranger visiting the house. Exactly. So any any aggression, aggressive response that's motivated by those, those things, fear, anxiety, stress, frustration, those, if we start to add in punishers or something that is the dog doesn't like what we're doing is just adding a negative to a negative situation. The, the example I use a lot is the um, like an invisible fence, right? So it works by punishment in, in the um, behavioral sense. So most clean behavioral terms, that's a positive punisher. A dog runs to the fence line and gets either the beep or the actual shock from the uh, invisible fence collar. And and, uh, and that's the thing about invisible fence collars is they work beautifully because there's really no human intervention. It's, it's, the timing is actually really great. That's why they work so well in so many cases. It's just the association that we can, unfortunately, that comes along for the ride. So let's say the mailman comes by every day. The dog's typically fine with everybody. Excited to see the mailman, goes charging to the fence line to go say hello, and then they get the beep. The beep, when conditioned to a shock, by the way, will have the same punishing characteristics as the actual shock because it's so classically conditioned to it. But um, the dog runs to the fence line, gets the beep of the shock. Next thing you know, the dog's like, oh, that wasn't so great. So, uh, okay, all right. So the mailman goes away. The mailman comes again the next day. Same thing. Um, 
the dog runs to the fence line and uh, uh, gets that beep and that or that shock. So then the dog starts to potentially carry this association. Wait a second. Every time this, uh, I should use the appropriate term, postal uh, employee comes by and um, they are they show up, I might get shocked. So there's that negative association being created. Um, and enough times of doing that, pretty soon I was like, you know what? I've had enough of this postal carrier. I am going to let them know next time. And then sometimes they break through that fence line to go and actually uh, use aggression to make that postal carrier go away. So uh, punishing uh, punishment, and that's a very clean example. Like that, that is as about as clean as you can get. It can get even muddier sometimes if the punishment is not always consistent. So that the the definition of that is anxiety. Create anxiety in dogs of not not knowing when the next ball is going to drop. That is the definition of anxiety. Is it's not sure what's the outcome of what's going to happen next. That can create further issues. So you can see where. Um, there's a lot of issues with punishment, uh, and I will be fair. It's not that it happens in every case. You know, there's plenty of times that punishment does work, but we run the risk of the potential side effects. So, so when there's other methods that we can use that don't carry the same side effects, why not start with those first uh, and, and incorporate those? Oh my God, I love that. I love that so much. You know, there's so many rescuers and shelters out there that do still like slap prong collars on their dogs and you see it on, on social media all the time. And I think they just don't know. I mean, they're all in the business because they love dogs and they want to do the best by dogs. And so I think this conversation is so important. I didn't know this a decade ago. So, you know, the more we can get this information out to all these dog loving people that if you really want to set your dogs up for success, it's best to start with positive means. Yes. Yeah. It's again, because it's not, you know, I'm, I'm not the type that just comes out attacking anybody's tools or anything like that. Cause they, they, they work. They, you know, I used to use those tools. I'm what they call as a, known as a crossover trainer so i understand the use of those tools and how they work so it's not that they don't work it's just that they for me carry a higher risk of potential side effects or what they would call fallout than if you were to go with a positive reinforcement strategy so why not start with the positive reinforcement strategy the thing that has the least amount of potential side effects so um that's it's kind of very straightforward for me at this point in my life of why i would approach using uh, positive methods. I totally agree with that. And also rescue dogs, shelter dogs, they are in such a, you know, stressed out state just from the upheaval in their lives that you're already stacking the deck against them. Yeah. One of the things I hear a lot is, you know, you don't, we don't have time or we don't have the resources or this is a last resort. So, you know, using an e-collar or something would be appropriate for this case. And, um, you know, I understand that. I understand that, uh, again, coming from a rescue background, that, that there are limited resources. Sometimes there is limited time, but there's always that option. There's always other options that we can do for that dog. And most of the time when we're reaching for those quick fix strategies, you're going to see some fallout because of what you just mentioned there, Emily, is that the they're already in a stressful situation. Their environment has changed. They're being shifted around. We've got some you know, um, people trying to help the dog. And so we start using uh, something we might uh, look at as a quick fix. That's going to look good on paper because you can take an aversive uh, tool. I can take an e-collar. I can stop a behavior. I can suppress a behavior. That's going to look really good. 
right? It's going to be like, wow, it's almost like made for TV. Like, okay, I, yeah, the dog now stopped barking. Sure, I get a, I get a dog almost stop doing anything using an aversive enough stimulus. Looks good on paper. But what happens when that dog now goes to the new home or the adopted home? We suppress the behavior. Great, it's good, but it doesn't mean we've changed the underlying reason for that behavior in the first place. If we don't address the underlying reason, whether it's pain, fear, anxiety, stress, you don't address the behavior. So once that new owner either stops using the e-collar or doesn't know how to use it, next thing you know, the aggression comes roaring back, often much worse because we suppress some of the signals we want to keep in the first place. And so um, I think it's a, uh, a two-part issue is that, yes, we need to uh, work with what resources we have, but also it's an educational issue. We have to um, educate that sometimes the positive methods um, are the most appropriate, but also um, can be faster than some of these quick fixes. Because what's going to happen is when done right, you can still enact those behavior change, but we're going to change the underlying reasons. So the fear, the anxiety, stress. But most importantly, for these dogs in shelter and rescue, we're adding in positives. We're, we're um, negating the stress and the frustration, things that can happen in those environmental changes by using positive methods because the dog stay is going to be great if all of this good things happening, treats happening, training, and all of this enrichment and good things happening. You are addressing the root cause of the problem there by doing that. So I argue that positive training is actually a faster fix than aversive methods, um, even though aversive methods can look good on paper at first. So that's that's just I love that point so much. You're not just dealing with an unwanted behavior, you're also adding enrichment to the dog's life that is going to help relieve the stress that is contributing to those unwanted behaviors. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at just how much stress can play a role, if you look at like some of the studies um, that have been done on just like resource guarding, for instance, the prevalency of resource guarding, if you do nothing, nothing except just take the dog from the shelter environments and you put them into a home environment, the resource guarding behaviors decrease in frequency. That's with zero training, no training, no intervention at all, just a change in environment. So oh. you can see how much stress can play a role in some behaviors, especially aggressive responses. That's amazing. It's so similar to, it's so similar to us. I mean, when we're stressed out at the end of the day, you know, we're more likely to snap at our partner if we've had a really exactly. stressful day or, you know, we're in the middle of some big test or project, but if we're sitting on the beach, then we're pretty relaxed. Like, Hey, yeah, sure. I'm totally excited to have a conversation with you now, but yeah. So I, I think we just need to understand that their responses are so similar to ours when they're under stress. Yeah. And here's, here's my shout out to all the fosters and everybody in the rescue world here is that you're, you're doing behavior change strategy, whether, whether you like it or not, you get that dog out of a stressful environment, you bring them to your home and you, if you do nothing, if you just sit there and watch the dog do nothing, you're already doing a service for that dog. They're in a home environment in a much less stressful situation. So there's, there's really no urgency or training pressure that needs to happen in that first couple of weeks even. Just let the dog settle in. Let them say, this place is pretty cool. No pressure on me. It's so much less stressful. And I'm sure many of the foresters are giving a lot of extra stuff, treats and soft dog beds and all of that stuff. But there's no need for a lot of training pressure in most cases um, in, in terms of that regard. Of course, you know, little things like 
house training issues or not chewing your furniture. But, you know, there's no need to, to put all of the significant pressure on the dogs. Oh my God, I love that so much. The value of doing nothing, just letting them come in and decompress. Exactly. We yep. had a great episode with Dr. McConnell about decompression. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, it really is just let them come in, don't put any pressure on them and let them relax. Yes, yeah. Anything Dr. McConnell says is it's worth gold because it's <laughs> yeah. it's so true. You know, um, no one knows it much better than her, so. You briefly mentioned resource guarding. Uh, can you talk about how we inadvertently create resource guarding when we're trying to help our dogs? Yeah, so if, if anything can be taken away from this episode and spread out to the masses is just stop trying to do all these things to get the dog used to it, right? So if, if we just left dogs alone while they're eating or have a toy or a bone or something that they would normally guard, you don't, you won't create the issue in the first place. And sometimes even if the dog has a pre-existing resource guarding issue, let's say they have a history of biting the assessor hand or something like that, which I, again, don't recommend poking at dogs when they're eating in any facet. We don't need to do that. Just leave them alone while they're eating. And if you do that, the dogs are like, huh, my last home, people were poking proud of me and messing around with me and my food. But in this home, nobody's messing with me. So I can trust these people. So there's no need to guard. So you don't even treat the issue sometimes and it goes away. So one of the worst things we can do, and I see this advice all the time, is to do things in the name of getting the dog used to it. Stick your hand in the food ball while they're eating. Pet them while they're eating. Pick up the food ball and put it down so they know you own the food. Or, you know, you do all these, these really, the, the, the reasoning behind these things is so, uh, it's maddening when you think about it because all we're doing is aggravating the crap out of our dogs by doing that, right? So it's it's if you have an existing issue, there's ways to treat it, right? We can we can work on uh, dogs that do have resource guarding issues, but a lot of times we don't have to do anything, and a lot of times we don't have to do much to uh, uh, avoid resource guarding. You can teach it by irritating the dog while they're eating, or if they have a bone, or for not recognizing them. It's this particular thing, the dog likes it, so let's not try to take it away. We can do things so that they voluntarily start to uh, trade or give you things or if we want to have preventative maintenance or if you have small children in the home things like that there's there's things we can do to ensure things don't become a problem or treat things if there is a problem but first and foremost let's leave them alone while they have a resource and that's the that's the um, best thing um, to do for dogs to avoid this uh, really epic problem with resource guarding issues that i'm seeing them it's just it's getting much worse, unfortunately. I've seen that all of my students and trainers that I teach are seeing a higher prevalency in, in um, resource guarding issues, especially after pandemic times, um, uh, among other things that are, uh, we're seeing, of course, issues with separation anxiety issues and all those other things from the pandemic. So yeah, hopefully, um, hopefully people start to not worry so much about, you know, uh, training their dog to get used to things. Let's just leave them alone while they're eating or having resource give them a safe space to do that. So we've been chatting for 45 minutes and I realized that we haven't covered one big concept, which is dominance. You haven't mentioned that once. And I feel like that is a myth that we should chat about before we let you go. 
Yeah, yeah. So the big D word, right? That's a, yeah, that's the so controversial, like especially in dog training circles. So, uh, you know, dominance is a thing. It's an ethological concept that pretty much to sum it down into one line is um, priority access to a resource. So animals do use dominance with each other. That being said, that's all it is. It's not some hierarchy where you have to be alpha. That whole alpha. Uh, um, construct has been completely debunked many, many times. Uh, so uh, we don't need to really use that word dominance anymore. We don't need to apply it because it's the problem with labels and constructs is that they get applied massively at a mass scale. So now everything's related to dominance. And that's what happened uh, in the in dog training behavior world in the 90s and in the 2000s, early 2000s. So all this, everything's dominance. Dogs being dominant, so we have to be more dominant. And that creates so many issues for so many dogs. Like, oh no, the dog's, uh, you know, laying on the couch there. So now I can't let that happen. Dogs being dominant or sleeping on my bed. Dogs going to dominate the world if they're sleeping on my bed. It's such, it's such nonsense when you think about it in the grand scheme of things. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a construct. I hope that goes away. I think it's, it's a useful term for a very small subset of people that really understand what dominance is and talking about it from an ethological concept. But there's, there's really no need to, to apply it. Let's just look at behavior. Let's look at what the dog is doing and stop worrying about if the dog is being dominant or alpha or stubborn or just, you know, whatever else people want to call it. If we look at what the behavior actually is, that's all we need to know. Let's say, what's, what do we want our dogs to do instead rather than saying, oh, I've got to be more dominant. It's, it's just, um, it, and that's, not to go off on a tangent, but the, the, that's like, when you think about it, it's like when we're treating behavior issues, you know, the, a lot of the schools of Florida, let's let's treat everything but the actual behavior itself. So dogs need more exercise. The dogs need more uh, walks, structured walks or pack walks, or the dogs need you to be more dominant. And then they will stop um, snapping at me when I pet them on their rear end or their hip or something. And that whole behavior is motivated. Let's say, let's use that for example. Uh, the dog is growling at people when they pet its leg or its hip. Dog's being dominant, and that's what it's attributed to. So now you got to punish the dog, or or be put the dog in its place, or some alpha role in the dog, or do all these awful things. When it hasn't been recognized that the whole reason for the behavior, the dog's in pain, the dog's at hip dysplasia or torn ACL, but the dog's being dominant, and so nobody ever treats the torn ACL, and they attribute it to dominance, and it's just this vicious cycle. Oh my gosh, he growled at me. Now I've got to take him by the neck and pin him down, or withhold his meals or kick him off the bed or all of these things that are not actually addressing the actual behavior. So rather than saying, okay, I've got to, the, the trigger for this behavior is when I go reach to pet him. And the reason for the behavior is because he's in pain. And so we never actually go to addressing, okay, let's first of all address the pain issue. Now let's teach the dog that it's okay when people pet because it's going to predict something good for the dog is going to happen. So, um, yeah, I hope that it continues. You know, I've seen some wonderful changes in the behavior world where people are starting to recognize, let's actually treat the behavior, and treat, like recognize why the dog's doing these things in the first place um, and making sure to give it the, the true reasons for why the dog's doing it in the first place without attributing to some sort of a hierarchy or dominance concept. And I have one other question along that line of, you know, that positive reinforcement works for all breeds. The concept of some breeds need a heavier hand and you can throw treats at a Pomeranian, but if you're dealing with a Connie Corso, 
then you need a heavier hand. And I've noticed that you work with all breeds in the same way. Yeah, yeah. That's another misconception too, I think. Um, you know, I think part of it is uh, like this uh, sort of just trying to be like, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but, but there's like this machoism to it. Like you, know, you see a lot of, I see that comment a lot from male trainers as well, uh, where they, they, it's like, you got to have a heavy hand. It's like almost like I got I to gotta be like one of them cool it's stronger than the dog um but it's you know it's such a again another misconception because if i carried that same concept over into let's just let's not talk about dogs let's talk about other species you know let's let's take that trainer that wants to have a heavy hand well let's put him in a zoo with a you know 600 pound gorilla or a you know, 800 pound lion and let's see how heavy-handed they can be with those animals where they're using strictly positive reinforcement to get the animal to come up and, and you know stick its leg out of a cage for a blood draw, right? All trained through positive reinforcement. You think I'm gonna throw a collar on that dog of that lion and just drag it over the cage? No. So um, it's the same with dogs. You know, it doesn't matter the size of the dog. We've got to just you know use our good training skills, the positive reinforcement, and cooperative, be cooperative with the dog. So I'd much rather actually be cooperative with a dog that could weigh, you know, 50 pounds more than me in some cases and could easily do much more damage. I would much rather have a cooperative conversation with that dog than a forceful one. So why risk it? It's kind of, it kind of, when you think about it, it makes really uh, this, like, it's like this odd argument. Okay, I'm going to be more heavy handed with the dogs that could literally bite my arm off versus the little tiny chihuahua that I'm going to be you know, less heavy handed with, but can't bite my face off. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we got to see that myth go away too. Uh, dogs, dogs, whether it's a, you know, five pound dog or 150 pound dog, is the, the treatment plan's going to same, but the, of course the subtle differences in, in how high you give the treat <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, the little differences in equipment, but that, that's, that's it. Is there, before we let you go, is there anything else you think the rescue and shelter community needs to know about aggression in dogs that we didn't cover? Nowhere to look for help. So I know that uh, rescues um, uh, sometimes have, depending especially on where they are located, might have limited resources. But the nice thing about the whole pandemic is that people have learned to learn and to teach online. So the resources are out there for really getting the best help for the dogs in your program that might have aggression issues uh, because that's where it starts because unfortunately it's the wild west with dog training and behavior and you might end up with something that can make dogs much worse if you're not careful so nowhere to look there's great resources out there like your podcast but also you know iwabc so iaabc.org for good behavior consultants the ccpdt um there's, there's uh, the, uh, of course, the veterinary behaviors, so DACVB. There's lots of great resources out there to that are science-based, that are give, give, give really good information um, that's not based in some sort of folklore or myth, myths that we want to avoid. So uh, know where to look, but those know that those resources are out there and know that you're not alone. The rescue world, uh, as being from there, can be a bit lonely or feel a little bit, um, uh, you know, just like any other uh, dog training. Uh, conversation can have the own conversations that feel a little bit uh, icky or, or, or competitive sometimes, but I know that you're not alone in the rest of it. There's, there's help out there and there's people wanting to help uh, with training and behavior. So uh, we're there for you. Awesome. And where can people find you online? 
Yeah, so um, everything I do is through aggressivedog.com. I've got uh, actually, um, depending on when this episode airs, but I've got uh, a complete website revamp happening right now where I'm including a lot more resources for people that are in the uh, pet own, just pet owners, rescues, uh, veterinarians. Uh, so it's gonna that's gonna have a full um, area for articles and videos. I've got a lot of other professionals, a lot of my students writing articles and producing video content for me now. So as a general resource, I really want it to be the go-to resource for people having issues with aggression, whether it's a rescue, shelter, or a pet owner. Um, so that's going to be launched. That's through aggressivedog.com. It's got all the information. I've got courses, webinars, conference information there, podcast information there. Um, and uh, they can they can find me at the By the End of the Dog podcast. That's um, available a couple seasons in now. So um, So that's where I am. Yeah. Well, this was wonderful and such an honor to have you on our podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. I learned a ton and I know our listeners will too. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked this episode, don't forget to rate and review. It helps other folks like you find the show. To find out more about our programming and adoptable rescue dogs, you can visit summitdogrescue.org. Thanks to Mike Pesci for the original music and to Alex Lee Ammons and For the Love Media for graphics, production, and editing. See you soon on Pod to the Rescue.